You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Vampires in the Lemon Grove. In October, the men and women of Sorrento harvest the primo fiori, or first flowering fruit, the most succulent lemons. In March, the yellow bianchetti ripen, followed in June by the green verdelli. In every season, you can find me sitting at my bench, watching them fall. Only one or two lemons tumble from the branches each hour, but I've been sitting here so long their falls seem contiguous close as raindrops. My wife has no patience for this sort of meditation. Jesus Christ, Clyde, she says. You need a hobby. Most people mistake me for a small, kindly Italian grandfather, a nano. I have an old nano's coloring, the dark walnut stain peculiar to southern Italians, a tan that won't fade until I die, which I never will. I wear a neat periwinkle shirt, a canvas sun hat, black suspenders that sag at my chest. My loafers are battered but always polished. The few visitors to the lemon grove who notice me smile blankly into my raisin face and catch the whiff of some sort of tragedy. They whisper that I'm a widower or an old man who has survived his children. They never guess that I'm a vampire. Karen Russell is the author of the short story collection St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves and the novel Swamplandia. Her new book is a collection of short stories, Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Thank you for joining me, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. Karen, as I read the stories in this book and your novel and the stories in your other book, I was really amazed by your ability to build entire worlds with such brevity and with such great wordplay. I'd like you to talk a little bit about how you encounter these worlds as a writer in your mind and then how you translate what you encounter in your mind into the stories. Sure. I'll, I'll do my best. You know, a lot of it, I think, ends up being kind of unconscious labor, too, because it takes such a long time to gestate a short story for me. It, it varies, but there's some stories in this new collection that I think I, I was thinking about you know, for a year before I sat down to write them in some cases or they're just sort of percolating, you know, in the in the shadows. It it, it you know, it's it's such a different process, you know, novel to stories, I think it it's very different too. Oh, so it's very different it is different for you from a novel to a story. They're not just one's not just a longer version of the other. Oh my gosh, no. That was the delusion I labored under when I tried to the the novel Swamplandia grew out of this short story, Ava Russell's The Alligator. And in my early 20s, when I was naive in this honeymoon phase with these alligator wrestlers, I just thought, yeah, I'll basically approach novel drafting the same way that the stories come into being, which up until that point had been sort of uni- sort of uniform. Like I would, there would be an image that was interesting to me. Often in the St. Lucie's collection, there would be a setting. So, uh, you know, some weird setting, a sleepaway camp for kids with sleep disorders, you know, narcoleptics and insomniacs. A uh, school for werewolf children that were going to be re-educated, you know, turned into proper girls. Alligator, you know, Swamplandia, this alligator wrestling park. So it would be a place that I went to. And then the constraints of that place, you, you add a character and their personality to sort of what's possible and impossible in this landscape. And then that the plot would often arise from that friction. 
and I would feel my way forward. And with the story, I think it's possible to do that. The whole thing can feel like it's coming up all together. So I'll often write stuff out of order. I'll get the ending first. I'll get a scene from the middle first and build outward around that. You know, it's it's not so linear for me. And with this novel, I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll do it the same way. A novel's even bigger than a short story. You can have lots of digressions. You can follow characters down weird tributaries, which I did and then ended up having, you know, hundreds of pages that didn't really fit with the book. So it's it's a I guess it's always that's the process, right? To follow your imagination but but try to you know, at a certain point consciously figure out what am I up to? What are the parameters of this world? It's it, it's tricky. Well, I really like what you do, and I think it's it's so interesting the way you go about this. What uh, in science fiction they call it world building, and, mm-hmm. and it, it, I just think of the the prototypical example of that is Dune, and I think you do that in miniature in your stories, and, and you come up with such interesting worlds. So let's just talk about the first world we encounter in your new collection, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, the the world of your vampires. These this is set in Italy. It's not the usual setting for <laughs> vampires. What made you decide to to tackle this? Is a very you know, this is something that vampires are not an uncommon character type in today's literary world. <laughs> no, not at all. And in that sense, I mean, yeah, it's it's risky, I guess, just because we're all so totally sick, sick unto death of this particular monster, you know. And I think when I first conceived of this story, it was pre-Twilight, you know, so I didn't even know how totally fatigued people would be. But um, thank you so much for that compliment because it's so funny. I'm rereading Dune now. I love that book. I adore that book. And that was such an instruction as a as a young reader to to see the way that he builds an entire cosmos. I mean, not just the planet Dune, but sort of how that planet is constellated in this gigantic, you know, government, cosmological order. You know, yeah, the 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 way that the ecology intersects with politics and all that. I think to take on something that the scope of that, it, I, I haven't. I don't know that I'd be able to do anything quite like as epic as Dune, but what I like about short stories when they work is that you do have a sense that there is a whole world beyond the beyond beyond the twelve pages where you meet these characters that you're just getting a slice of life on like an entirely other place, and for it to feel kind of complete. This story has a stupid the vampire story. I, I just was on vacation. I was on a vacation. My grandfather wanted to see Europe uh, before he died, so we went to Sorrento. And there was a lemon grove, and there was just my grandfather's analog, this tiny Italian senior who was drinking some kind of lemon drink. And I said to my siblings, wouldn't it be funny if he can be out in the day because he's discovered lemonade is some kind of, you know, vampire's methadone or analgesic. And they were like, that's that's stupid. That's not funny at all. And then we continued. But I think somehow just that... um, that the lushness of the grove and sort of the, the melancholy of that tiny pinched figure who did look so much like this tan vampire to me or something, just sort of imagining a sunny purgatory like that, you know, where it's not some hell realm necessarily, you know, you're not in in total agony, but this guy has just figured out a temporary fix for a really chronic appetite. I think that was as goofy as the premise is. I think that was really troubling. Well, I I love that that feeling, that idea of that uh, purgatory. And I think Mm -hmm. that that, the story really conveys that kind of, lonely, forlorn um, atmosphere. One of the things you do very well in this story, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, is uh, this is a great example. There are a lot of sentences that are a great example of your style of humor, where you have will have uh, this kind of complete contrast in one sentence. And I'd like you to talk about that kind of uh, humor that you evoke. Oh, well, 
Oh, geez. I'm glad. I'm so glad it works. I, I think it probably doesn't uh, work for every reader. But I, I do think that there's um, always comedy and tragedy and vice versa. I, I see them as very connected, you know. So it's just a different vantage point from which to consider some really absurd situation. I think part of it is part, there's some comedy intrinsic in just in our in, in all human situations where we're very aware of these things that we're powerless against. You know, we're very conscious of these sort of ancient appetites. In, in the case of this guy in particular, you know, he's sort of his sort of uh, resignation to this really sort of in, in some ways abominable situation. You know, I think there is some kind of humor in that. And I also think, you know, I don't think that it's it's sort of instinctive. I'm not always thinking about it as, I, as I'm drafting, but I do think the writers I love, like Flannery O'Connor, George Saunders, Sam Lipset, Beckett even, they help me to develop a sense of how you can you sort of earn permission to say something that is baldly tragic, you know, or very poignant without it feeling sentimental or overwrought if you can also have some levity in the mix. So there's a way that a humor, you know, it's a sort of a wink at the reader, like we're all in this together. And 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 I, I sort of love humor always because there's a real humility to it. I think it's some sort of acknowledgement of something. I'm thinking now of like Kafka's The Metamorphosis, which is at once an unbearably sad story about a man who wakes up in the prison of this insect body and ultimately dies after being a burden and, you know, impoverishing his family, terrifying them, dies in, in loneliness. and just. But also there's something so funny in a terrible way about that, right? There's something that feels so familiar and so funny that you're like, oh, my God, I'll try to move my tiny mandibles. I can't turn over in the bed. I'm going to be late for work, you know? <laughs> well, that was, uh, you know... I remember reading about Kafka. When I read that story, I just thought it was the most horrific, terrorizing oh, yeah. story I could ever read. But yeah. when Kafka read it, he thought it was hilarious. He thinks it's hilarious, <laughs> right? Isn't that the right? That there's that. what is the matter yeah. with that man? <laughs> right, but I mean, I think yeah, there's something depending on what vantage point you're looking at it from. It, yeah, it can seem tragic or comic, right? I mean, I don't think it's any any one thing. So with these vampires, I mean, I think that they're they're sort of in a desperately sad place. With their marriage, but sort of the predicament, as I imagined it, it is sort of a comic one, right? Like, they're like, well, all right. We figured out that the blood does nothing. We don't have to drink it. That's a win. That feels like a success. However, we are going to live forever, and we still have these throbbing fangs. We still have this appetite, that's this desire that seems to have no bottom and no answer. So that's neutral at best, you know what I mean? <laughs> Talk about uh, crafting these vampires. Did you think beforehand, before you wrote the story, okay, the vampire has this attribute, this attribute, and this attribute. They can go out in the sun. Right. They they don't need blood, really. And then create the characters? Or did you create the characters and then have the attributes of the vampire flow from the characters themselves? Yeah, I think I sort of think it was a co-evolution. I mean, I don't recall sort of sitting down and, and making a bullet-pointed list of the parts of the myth that were totally totally myth and what um what was true and i i got dinged for this i was doing a reading recently and someone who's a total bram stoker buff and vampire lover was telling me why the story was a failure because it you know because of the ways that it deviates from the the you know the old old school vampire well that's actually for me why it's a success why, well <laughs> and that, and I, I was sort of i was like oh dear i mean you, <laughs> you you can't please everybody but I think I was thinking a little bit, I was thinking about it as sort of an analog for various addictions, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess the obvious one would be um, alcoholism, but really I think it could be any sort of chronic 
you know, appetite. So you sort of discover that this substance that you believed was fundamental, you know, to, you know, your existence on this planet, you couldn't do without it. You actually can do without it. Um, but the original appetite is still there. You know, that's undiminished. So now what? You know, I think that for me, what, that guided me in sort of figuring out what can they do yeah. Oh, you know, just the joy of like recovering from any kind of addiction. Wait, I can go into the sun. I can love this woman. I don't have to spend my my afterlife or, you know, my undead, my all, all of my years. I don't have to tithe them to this app, this uh, compulsive behavior. That's exciting. You, but, can, um, you find you can do without the blood, but not do it. But what you can't do without is the appetite for the blood. Right. That the craving recurs. Mm. That that's not that hasn't gone away. And I think in some ways that feels like just a pretty universal human predicament. I mean, I don't know. I mean, probably there's somebody in Tibet who wouldn't be able to relate to this story because they've moved beyond craving. But <laughs> I think no, most they of haven't. Us, they, have, they haven't either. Right. <laughs> that's why they moved to Tibet. <laughs> right. One of the things I think that uh, the themes I think that occur recurs in your fiction is uh, these visions of the family not too happy. Not yeah, I guess not too happy. Uh, I, but <laughs> that's, that's, that's such a diplomatic functional. way to. <laughs> I would say slightly, slightly functional and not too happy is yeah. That's the kind of uh, understatement of the century for these guys, right? Well, kind. talk about uh, <laughs> as you create these stories. Are you aware? Do you have? Uh, are you aware of this when you create the characters, or does does this just emerge from the world building itself? For example, in Swamplandia. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's well, a, that's sort of a pretty obvious, right? That's right. that's a pretty dysfunctional tribe of pr- pretend Indian, yeah, grifters on the swamp island. I think, I I think again, it's it's never anything that I'm really parsing out consciously as I'm drafting off, and they just co-arise, you know. So sort of the characters in the landscape. I even have a hard time when I'm teaching separating setting from characters because there's this way that, of course, the the setting shapes those people so profoundly and then they in turn are, you know, interacting with this environment. So it all it feels sort of kind of seamless to me. And um, in the case of Swamplandia, you know, they've, their mother has died. They've lost their alligator wrestling headliner. Um, I think there's a lot of love there, but there there is a lot of dysfunction, as you say. And... Um, the swamp must have just felt to me like the right place to stage a story about that kind of grief, you know, that kind of special perdition that can happen when your own family myth falls apart or whatever. Now, <clears throat> one of the things I've noticed in all the writing I've read, it seems like there's a tremendous amount of research that must go into this, like into some of these short stories. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the reeling for the empire, that seems like you could spend... Uh, do uh, must have done almost a novel's worth of research just to create a Japan that you can mutate right. to your own particular <laughs> needs. Um, proving up again, it's you know the Midwest. There's all sorts of research you could do there. Barn at the end of our term. There's two different parts of kinds of research that come oh, together. Yeah. So talk about uh, how much of this research uh, do you do a lot of research, and do you sometimes just find yourself uh, combing nonfiction and saying, oh, wait, yeah. there's a story there, isn't there? 
Yeah, that's thank you. That's such a nice question. Thank you for noticing too, because I was proud in some sort of like vestigial grade school way, because I did feel like, and it's it's various points drafting this collection. Like I wish someone would ask me any facts about the U.S. presidents or horses, <laughs> you know? Or I'd be like, I really well, wish somebody would talk to me about Meiji era Japan, because I am flush with knowledge. You know, it's it's um it's an amazing uh, this uh, really for the empire is really an amazing creation because in a short space of you know 20 pages or so it's got such a vivid picture and details you've got a lot of details in there it doesn't feel like you're um offloading the research though because you have oh, this I'm other glad. really creepy thing going on there's quite a creepy thing going on right i'm i'm glad for that because i think that's always a tricky balance i mean mm -hmm. with swamplandia i learned so much about I, just herpetology. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the editing for that novel was my editor, you know, graciously and, and gently saying that while I found it fascinating that alligators did this like water bubble mating dance, it didn't really advance the plot, you know, because <laughs> there was this way where you learn these amazing facts that maybe don't necessarily develop character or need, not belong in, in the mm -hmm. book or they're distracting. It feels kind of like, you know, a little historical sidebar, you know, museum placard. So, that's that's something I'm still kind of trying to figure out, sort of where, how to embroider those details into the story in a way that feels like organic. And I think with that Japan that you're mentioning, in some ways it's 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 a real historical Japan, and then in other ways it's such a departure. I mean, I really imagined these are these girls who are uh, turned into silkworm monsters by a recruitment agent when um, Japan is going from this isolated feudal island to sort of adopting Western-style technologies, industrializing really rapidly. And I think in the case of that world building, what felt so exciting to me was finding that parallel where it's sort of the whole nation is undergoing a metamorphosis. And one consequence of that is that these young women who are sort of on, on a threshold themselves um, find themselves in a nightmare factory where they're converted into factory machinery, basically. these You know, they're really reduced to their functions. And... Um, so the connection between those two metamorphoses, sort of the macrocosm and the microcosm, I really loved. There was a symmetry there that I thought was really powerful. Um, and then it's just a question of not procrastinating with research, I think, because you could read for, I mean, I, you could get your MA on that, on that topic. I, you know, and I, um, there's, there's a lot written about sort of early feminism in Japan is connected to these factory workers and horrifying, horrifying stuff really kind of beautiful stuff, too, uh, about just the scope and the sweep of, of change, you know, in Japan at that time. So the, the other one that you mentioned, Proving Up, I mean, that felt like such a gift from the universe because I had been doing all this research for a second novel set during the Dust Bowl drought, and I was reading a book on the L train in Chicago, and this couple sat down, and we just started talking. It turned out that they were descended from these Mennonite farmers who had, you know, thanks to the Homestead Act, they had kind of staked their claim, earned their title, and they'd done it. At, we were talking about the Homestead Act and this kind of weird clause that says that you have to have a glass window in addition to X acres and spend X amount of time improving the land. And you must have a house built to, built to a certain dimension with a glass window. And glass was this luxury good at that time. You know, the rail, the, the, the railroads didn't run out there yet. So this couple's telling me about a Mennonite community where they just swapped the window around. Whenever they sent the inspector out, you know, they would just put a kid on a horse and ride the window out to him. And I loved that. And that grew into the story. That sort of, it's more rare that that will happen, that there will be a straight historical fact that I kind of build out of. So. Well, one of the things about that story was 
when I first started reading it, I was, I'm going, what world is this? It was, your language oh, yeah. was so, and uh, uh, our own world <clears throat> made our own world seem so alien. So I'd like you to talk about crafting our own world as an alien world. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm really pleased to hear it reads that way because I think that's the that's my favorite experience as a reader is that exact uncanny sensation where you're sort of in in one sentence things seem so alien and so familiar right so you've just you just dune was like that for me since mm-hmm. we mentioned dune because you can kind of feel all the terrestrial earthly materials it's assembled out of the familial relationships the politics you know uh, just sort of oil uh, and the spice, like those those kinds of parallels. But you can just see something so much more clearly about life on this planet from this estranged perspective. And then also there's the Ben, you know, the, I'm, I, I'm mispronouncing them, the Ben Gesserit, the mm-hmm. Bene Gesserit, these like these psychic witches, you know, so they're, they're these... The Catholic Church oh, in yeah, space. Oh, yeah, exactly, the Catholic Church in <laughs> space. But it's like the, to have that, it's the shock of recognition, right? Uh-huh. It's just, it's such a surprise that you're even able to recognize that. I'm always the slow, the slowest, too, to pick up. I was telling a friend about the Narnia books. I didn't realize, I was raised Catholic and didn't realize that they were a Christian allegory until I was, you know, like in my 20s or something. I was like, it's weird when that lion dies for three days. You know, I just, that rings some bells, you know? <laughs> But I think the language plays a big part in um, mm-hmm. in uh, achieving that estranged perspective. I really love that the language in that story. Now, one thing in that story that struck me: there's a character who we uh, we actually never see him, the inspector. Yeah, the inspector. Now, this reminded me of the agent in Reeling in the Empire, yeah. and to a degree, the the. The Birdman, sure. Yeah, that, yeah these kind of outsiders. So I'd like you to talk about this. This is a really interesting kind of trope to use to these kind of out, complete outsiders that who show up in these worlds you create. Yeah. Did you ever have an outsider like that in your life? Oh, geez. Um, I, uh, I mean, the short answer is no, right? I've never, I think mercifully there was never some, you know, grifter who, who just pulled into my life in such a kind of straightforward way but I guess with each of those figures that's such a great such a great question they're in 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 different ways in these different environments and historical periods I mean in this in Swamplandia the Birdman kind of shows up at a moment of crisis and um takes advantage of this child's hope right that she's going to find her mother in the underworld that she's going to save her sister and save the whole park I think um in uh the reeling for the empire story the agent figure there really were these recruitment agents, you know, who would kind of travel into rural areas where these these tenant farmers were up to their eyeballs in debt, and they would say, send your daughter, you know, to work here. It will be an imperial vocation, you know, and she'll receive, you know, this fantastic sum, and basically we own her for, you know, X years of her life. And I think um, with the inspector, there's this dream, this family has this dream that they can prove up and own their land. So I guess the figure sort of in all those cases will come at a moment of complete crisis and often economic crisis, just this this rupture where it's become clear that whatever dream this family had, be it, you know, to own their land, to, to you know, to sort of in Swamplandia, to, to have this kind of Edenic island park. Um, uh, I, it's, it's a similar dream, too. It's often kind of agrarian. It's, it's sort of that they want to be they want to be, they wanna be um, autonomous. They want to mm-hmm. own their homes. 
have some degree of autonomy over their existence. And then this figure will come and sort of it's it's Faustian in a way, right? Some bargain is brokered. Right. Yeah. I never thought about that. The Faustian aspect of this. Yeah. But I think it's that figure for me. It must. I mean, I, I don't. It's funny. It, it's it's nothing necessarily that I'm even that conscious of. But because it keeps recurring, I do think it's it's a way to think about the exploitation that can happen. The children who are sort of victims of this, right? When there's a there's a dream that's turned into a nightmare. There's some inflexible ambition and the landscape and this ambition, you know, the family's ambition, or right? it's often the the chief, right? The the father and the the proving up story. They have this dream that's soured and it's not functioning anymore, and they're not revising the dream. There's been, you know, seasons of drought, or they haven't, you know, there there's been no good crops, you know, for or in the case of Swamplandia, they're about to foreclose, and because that someone is not accommodating the new reality, these kids sort of um, are exposed to great peril. <clears throat> One of the things I think that you do very well is to capture this moment between childhood and adulthood. But also, this is true, I think, of many adults these days who don't get past this point, who are people who seem to exist in a quantum state between like oh, 18 that. and 85. I love that. <laughs> Either you're like really an old man and you're just <laughs> crabby and don't like the world, or you're a complete kind of dweeb <laughs> and you just have all this hope, which is often completely misfounded. <laughs> right, mis- right. It doesn't matter what age you are. There are people who manage to, who kind of like get to 18 and then leapfrog to 85 <laughs> and then spend the rest of their life going back in between. Those two poles. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My God, I love that. I'd like to steal that if that's okay with you, the quantum state. Yeah. I think they are in the quantum state. I think I sort of love quantum endings too, right? Where you're just (laughs) oscillating between these these binaries. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not, it's unsettled. It's unclear. Is it a happy ending or a sad ending? It's just like there's a real ambivalence there. Um, Yeah, I I love, I don't know what that says about me, but even sort of the vampires to me, I think that Clyde, the protagonist vampire, in some ways, he's just an embittered, centuries-old, you know, whatever you want, dry drunk or something. Uh-huh. And in other ways, I think he's like this stunted teenager, this totally exactly. emotionally wounded, stunted teenager. And I think that's it. That's like the, the quantum state. And I have a hard time. I don't know. I really don't know what that says about me, but I really do have a hard time sort of taking on a character who's a well-adjusted 35 to 50 year old working professional like what I don't know it's 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 the and I think it's because the, the, both of those ages are at, are at real thresholds you know when you're about to move from and it's never I don't think it's linear or ever completed I don't think it ever mm-hmm. really resolves when people say like moving from childhood to adulthood I sort of feel like we're all lying everybody is all of their ages all the time right like this matryoshka doll way and you can kind of oscillate between ages that's true yeah well I think actually the uh well-adjusted 42-year-old professional is uh, more uncommon than the centuries-old vampire. You're more <laughs> right, likely right. to um, find the latter than the You're former. You're going to find it, right, a 700-year-old vampire before you find or Or just that that person is, uh, yeah, is all of their ages at once often, you know, that there still is a, a child, you know, some, some series of, of kids within you that you just can't. It's a shallow burial anyways, you know, and I think it, that's that those are the attractive thresholds to me. That's, you know, when you're moving between sort of the private world of childhood and some kind of communal adult world. And then when you're staring death in the face, <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, puberty, the second, you know, puberty, the sequel. <laughs> I like that. One of the things I think that is so much fun about your books is how funny they are. 
And you write a lot of great sentences where things kind of go back and forth. In uh, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, there's a great sentence where he says, 200 years ago, we were preoccupied with visions of the apocalypse, not hot dogs, which (laughs) I think is a great, this kind of balancing act. And I've seen that kind of structure before. When you're writing these kind of sentences, do they just come out in the draft or do you like go back and do they come out in revision? Um, Does that, uh, that sense of humor, is that... Gosh, I'm glad. See, now you now you make me want to tell some tell some hilarious jokes. I feel, I feel like well, I feel like a tax that... accountant now. I'm like, oh, rats! I really want to bear out your super kind assertion. Um, I think often that's just the way my my dumb mind works. You know, that's just my that my, it's tough for me. The reeling for the Empire story was a little bit of a departure because that's I think there was half a joke in that story and we cut it when we mm-hmm. were editing. So that one really is. I think um, that's a horror straight story. horror. It's yeah. a real horror story, and proving up sort of similarly. Mm-hmm. Um, those were real horror stories for me, and there was something exciting about trying that because I like it. I love humor in a story, and then I, I, I sometimes it's tough for me even to know if it's um, um, making more poignant, you know, sort of the sorrow in the center of the story, or if it's like a crutch, you know, that's that's relieving attention that should be mounting and mounting and becoming unbearable. So that's something that I often need other readers to help me with. You know, when the humor is a tick and when it's actually really um, kind of an arrow pointing at whatever the deep, funny, strangeness, sadness of the story is. So. Uh, your stories are weird. <laughs> There's a lot of weirdness in all your stories. They all have some kind of real oddness at the center of them. And some of them kind of trend towards genre fiction. I guess, if anything, yeah. I would put you in the horror fiction camp because that has the biggest umbrella. You can have monsters. <laughs> you can, you can get have kind of the, in there too. Yeah, yeah. Right. You can have all that stuff. I mean, even um, as, as you pointed out, even uh, proving up, which is a story that has no real supernatural or any kind of odd aspect to it, is. It's a horror story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'd like you to talk about, you know, your awareness of genre, or do you think about it, or do you just like to write weird stuff? Oh, man. I think I'm deeply weird. I just think, I, or I gather, I don't know. <laughs> that seems to be the reception. Uh, I think I'm a big weirdo sort of undercover, you know. Um, but the stories don't read that way. I mean, even though they, they, any one of these stories, if I were to try to explain it. Yeah. Okay, it's about this and this and this. Uh, somebody say, "Well, that's pretty odd, Rick." But <laughs> when you read it, it doesn't read that way. You just say, "Well, this is kind of like a, a this is a really good story about women who are being turned into silkworms." Well, I'm so glad. I know sometimes I'll read the flap copy, you know, mm-hmm. like the jacket copy. I'm like, I'm a crazy person. How? <laughs> oh no, when you when you have to kind of paraphrase that what the stories are about, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's you know a teenager. I forget how I like the way that they phrased it, but I was like, "Oh, I sound like a schizophrenic." How terrifying! I think um, again. I mean, we mentioned Kafka, right? I just think there are these writers who use this, these supernatural elements to, um, you know, Flannery has that great quote. You know, for the blind, you draw large and startling figures. There might be a piece of me that's a little myopic, so I need to just draw these large and startling figures to to see better as as I'm writing, you know, kind of um, different aspects of their nature. And it's fun, too. I think sometimes I'll try to give a really academic answer, but the that's, that's a dimension that you shouldn't discount. I mean, it's just pleasure to make an entire world. And for me, it's always more pleasurable to imagine and elsewhere, you know. 
um, to be kind of the single arbiter of your own world. Like that's an amazing power of a, in any art, right? In visual art too. I mean, I always sort of, I would always rather see like a Hieronymus Bosch painting or a Dali or, a, you know, um, Odilon Redon or these, these total weirdos. That, that's just so, it's so exciting to me that you can go somewhere in your mind that doesn't exist in physical space-time. How cool. And I also think that something about, there's something liberating for me about being in this other slightly whacked out dimension where then it's more, it's more likely I can be emotionally honest about or, or look at some big question than if I was anxiously trying to write it in Scranton, Pennsylvania you know, or if, or you know, if I'm really trying to do a straight historical fiction about these homesteaders, I just think that would flop for me. Well, the, one of the things that's the the power of uh, genre fiction is that writers like you can use these elements of the fantastic to externalize mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. things and mm-hmm. make what is otherwise an emotion that you have to write about in some kind of stream of consciousness yeah. that's really preachy, you can all of a sudden turn that into a vampire liking lemons. Oh, and that's yeah. so much easier to read about. Or like a swirl, like a swarm of bats. Or I love swarms, too. Uh-huh. I think somehow, yeah, it's because it's externalizing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also a way that... It's uh, Flannery has that great one about that too. You know, like the wooden leg. It's a wooden leg first. You know, it's uh, she has a story about this for the, you know the Bible salesman. The, oh yeah, one of my Holda. favorites. <laughs> right, and but I love so it's it is a symbol. It kind of accretes meaning throughout mm-hmm. the story, but it's also it has a function in the story as a wooden leg. She didn't start out saying that's a big symbol with a capital S, but often I'll find animals or monsters. It is a way that you can you can use those as sort of. Um, just a visual representation of an emotional state. The swamp for me definitely became that. So whatever, it's always a real landscape. Mm-hmm. But it seems so correct for this child who's completely confused, in a totally uncanny state, cannot get her bearings about what's real and what's, you know, myth or false, and is just stuck in this really hellish spot between land and water. I mean, so the swamp, it was a way, too, to think about just the emotional state of grief for this kid. A perfect setting for the Orphaic journey. That's it. That's it, right? I mean, I, Dante got there first. I mean, I don't pretend that this is an original thought, but I, there is. it's nice to be part of a tradition of people who are like, say, mm-hmm. this, rem- <laughs> this reminds me of <laughs> a psychic landscape. Perhaps you guys have been there. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the famous uh, Rod Serling quote where he said that, Martians and Venusians say things that he could never have yes. Republicans and Democrats say. Hell yes, that's it, right? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Or like with the monster, you can sort of see things about yourself you wouldn't necessarily want to admit to because it is. Mm-hmm. It's it's an excised, yeah, quality that no one, nobody particularly wants to admit exists in our own natures. So um, we've made these strange mirrors. I love your monsters. I love that you do monsters, and I think you do them very well. Uh, do you actually think about them as monsters? When, For example, in, in the Silkworm story, did you think yeah. about them as monsters? Those girls? I think, um, gosh, I guess I guess I, I thought of them as these hybrid beings, you know? And then I think they become sort of their own beautiful... I thought a lot about the power of self-definition, right? I mean, for mm-hmm. a lot of these monsters, just the fact that they that's how they define themselves. Clyde is like, oh, I guess I'm a monster. I guess I'm a rapacious monster. Who, sure. who kills children, and that's what he becomes. I mean, and then, so just the role of storytelling, too, you know, and, and labeling and that kind of thing. I think um, there's a slipperiness in the collection, though, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think a lot of times the victims then become the aggressors. And 
Well, Sorry. there's the the power of stories in uh, the new veterans. That's a great example of how stories slip in inside out and yeah. stories externally, yeah. literally externalized and come to life. And yeah. uh, that was a that was a, a very disturbing and creepy story as well. Oh, I'm glad that I'm glad that was disturbing. In some ways, I think that was maybe the riskiest story in the collection because I. I was uh, really anxious, you know, because there's people's real histories at stake there, I think. Mm-hmm. I, and that um, must have required some research as well. It did. Uh, it did. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, I, I read, you know, I, one that was particularly helpful, there's The Good Soldiers by, um, I think, David Finkel, who's this embedded journalist, but also just, um, you know, we have a close family friend who was in Afghanistan. I, a, a really close friend of mine was um, part of, the initial Iraq invasion, um, and my father's a Vietnam vet. So I think thinking about the way that you narrativize the past and also thinking about guilt and traumatic repetition and memory and atonement, all these things. Uh, this is this story about um, a guy who gets a whole back tattoo because he's hoping to, in a very permanent way, memorialize the death of his friend. And if, and I I was just thinking about that impulse to make something so permanent, to wear the scar forever on your body because forgetting or healing feels like a kind of betrayal. Just thinking through that a little bit. One of the let, let's talk about a story that's slightly less serious, but mm-hmm. actually still quite beautiful. The barn at the end of our term. Oh, <laughs> that's you, yeah, that's at the opposite end of the spectrum. That's, that's a, I did not feel anxious writing that story. That <laughs> that felt like a very playful kind of a story. It's really fun, and you join these two completely different forms of lore. Uh, yeah. You must have done talk about like did you when you came up did you just have the core idea for the story and then play it out I think this I just gather from interviews that this is the one that's like sort of the most sort of vexing to people where they're like but why like how <laughs> what was that iron chef that you did like how did you why'd you use those ingredients um this I what I remember because it's all kind of a reconstruction now is just I had seen a documentary about the U.S. presidents full of all these super pompous voiceovers lots of like portentous you know Morgan Freeman sort of uh, baritone voiceovers and you know they, they would go through the presidents and talk about how interested they were in how history would remember them their legacy how would they be immortalized by history the difficulty some of them had leaving office so I think that was that was a way for me to think about yeah it is it's tough to tough to step down you know tough to to leave office and I was just thinking about the ego generally I guess and then my friend who I was living with at that time has horses she's this equestrian she had this hilarious book by this woman, There Are No Problem Horses, Only Problem Riders. So we were laughing about that. So how those two things got fused. And the third thing that I think I remember um, sort of must have fed the story somehow. I, do you know Kevin Brockmeyer? Yeah. Uh, Afterlives. So, yeah, the I, Illumination I'm, and A Brief mm-hmm. History of the Dead. Right. Brief History of the Dead. Right. Yeah. Well, he's a total world builder. I mean, he is a mm-hmm. super freaky genius. And I had this book called A Brief History of the Dead where there's a plague Coca-Cola unleashes it. Most people die on the globe. And when you die, you go to a strange antechamber between who knows how many worlds, and you stay there until the last person who remembers you dies, and then you go somewhere else. And what I liked about the book is you didn't feel like there was some secret Kevin was withholding from you Mm -hmm. as the narrator. You're just as clueless as everybody inside the book. I mean, you yourself, everyone is just kind of speculating about where the hell are they? Why did they end up there? And so I think I there's some perverse comedy in that to me that I enjoyed, right? That that must have sort of inspired this barn at the end of a term story where the presidents are reborn as horses. 
Because it's like, why would we expect, you know, all the presidents in their sort of letters that they were reading these diaries, there is this real anxiety about how they're going to be remembered. And um, what would that look like if you wound up not in a hall of the presidents, but in some Kentucky stable in the body of a horse, more mystified than you ever were in life, you know, like death. Death just delivers you to a new set of questions. <laughs> well, that's one thing you do in a few stories where you, like, this is a classic technique, and you do it very well where you give us somebody who's new to a really strange situation. It's strange to us, and it's strange to them. Yeah, yeah. And that's what, the, with Katsuko going into the the reeling for the Empire, she's kind of the new girl, and, and as it gets explained to her, and she, as she figures it out, we figure it out. And I think that's a great uh, way to take us into your worlds. Oh, well, thank you. I know that's always a tricky thing in a story, because you have to orient readers pretty quickly mm-hmm. to what's going on. And I, I do... Also, as just a chronically bewildered person who's generally hoping for the best, like I just I, I think that I can always relate to the, you know, the polite bewilderment of, of those characters. Now, uh, are you working on a, a new a new stories or, in, or a new novel? Oh, man. Rick, I always have like this weird nursery, you know, and I never know if they're going to come to life, these news stories, or it'll be like carnival jars, you know, like formaldehyde, like some idea preserved that just didn't, never took off. So I always have a bunch of stories in just various stages of disrepair or abandonment. And I have been working on a second novel, not kind of not right now because I'm going around yakking so much. But Is it um, based on your uh, proving up? It, it, well, yeah, proving up is an offshoot of it. It's a The proving up family, that would have been... You know, this story is set during the 30s, so they're, you know, that's the late 1800s, but mm-hmm. definitely some of those same. It would be another, how did, what did you call them, the families? Uh, slightly functional. A slightly functional families? <laughs> uh, yeah, in this case, it's sort of an entire town um, during the, the this apocalyptic dust storm, so... You like the apocalypses, don't you? Well, I was I was even feeling kind of self-conscious about that because it seems like there's so much, like, catastrophic literature right now in film. And but I yours wish, are personal. I like well, a personal apocalypse. I like a personal apocalypse. And I like, like we were saying, just the self-defining power, right, when, mm-hmm. with the heaven-hell needle. Where that where that <laughs> where that compass needle is going to land? I mean, we have a we have some role in in that, right? If you've just picked up Karen Russell's new collection of stories, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, your needle is going to be pegged on heaven. <laughs> I've been speaking with Karen Russell. Her new collection of stories is <laughs> Vampires great. in the Lemon Grove. Thank you for joining me, Karen. Oh, thank you so much, Rick. It was so fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.